Hello, Gregoire. Hello, Edgar. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. So, Gregoire, what are we talking about today? Today we are going to start a discussion on the articulation of the needed neutrality from the analyst and how to approach sensitive topics in which analysts might have an opinion and how this opinion could matter. And in addition to that, today we are going to offer a new kind of podcast. It might actually sound very much the same to many of you, but we did produce it in a substantially different way. Meaning that usually when we prepare a podcast, like um, we did, uh, I mean, the best example would be the ones on how to build ones on practice. Mm -hmm. We try to come up with a lot of the aspects of one theme. Mm -hmm. And we try to talk about it casually, like we usually do, within an hour of our time, which usually ends up being around a half an hour, 40 minutes of edited podcast. And this time around... Uh, we prepared something around the question of uh, neutrality. Yes. And we prepared a few pages of uh, things to talk about, like we usually do. And this time we realized that we couldn't keep on script. We realized that the conversation had to go in a place where actually we wouldn't be able to encompass the whole all the or all that's too much all most of the aspect of the theme correct it felt more and more fluid more out of bounds meaning we had notes but we were not following the notes yeah we started with the notes and we followed with our own associations on what we started with so it might sound different it was actually very interesting for us we hope you will like it there will be at least three podcasts like this including this one, organized in a similar way. Let us know if you feel like something's missing, if you ap actually appreciate it or, or not. And, well, I guess without further ado... Let's go on. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Francisco Danielsen. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Edgar, as we know, psychoanalysts are supposed to be, in quote, neutral. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to you? Uh, oh, well. <laughs> I... Okay, we can wrap up. Okay. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, a couple of things come to mind. In terms of neutrality, the more classical approach of Anna Freud, you know, the analyst is equidistant from ego, superego, and id, which is an impossibility, of course. And I guess that kind of neutrality is that we don't align ourselves with the different parts of the psychic structure of the patient, that we remain at a distance. Oh. Uh -huh. 
Do you think she meant the ego, superego, and id of the patients or ours of the analyst? I mean, well, that's a good question because I, I think as as we move forward, I understand also in what ways I don't align myself or try not to or see in what ways I lean towards this psychic structure of mine, the ego, superego, id. For me, that way of defining neutrality does not take into consideration the intersubjective field. Of course, it doesn't take into consideration in what ways we are impacted by the social inside the psychoanalytic room. I have read other approaches to neutrality that seem to me more nuanced and that take into consideration uh, both the subjective experience of the analyst and the analysant and as well as the other layers of who we are that are connected to the social, to the experience of navigating life outside the room. One of those that come to mind, Ken Corbett's take on neutrality, when he's in a paper that it's titled, I think, Gender Now, and in what ways identity is multilayered, and how do we locate ourselves as we are listening to the patient, he talks about the fourfold squared, which is the, you know, being equidistant from physiology, psychology, the culture, and politics. And that is a more nuanced approach to neutrality. It's an understanding that there is intrapsychic conflict as well as there are other layers and other forces at play when we're listening to the patient. And those forces at play are not necessarily only in the mind of the patient, but also in our minds. Yeah, we are talking about neutrality, but as we um, discussed when we were preparing the podcast, mm -hmm. even Ford doesn't talk about neutrality per se. He talks, and we had to find the English term, because I, mm -hmm. I only remembered it in French, and I guess you only remembered it in Spanish, too. <laughs> he talked about what we, we translate in English, a benevolent neutrality. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because I think even Ford understood that you can't be just neutral, and that even maybe neutrality is not welcome. Mm -hmm. A pure neutrality would kind of look like a machine, maybe. If we think that machine can be neutral, because machines are created by humans, which makes them hardly neutral, but that's yes, a different discussion. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so neutrality per se is not relevant. So even for the real on that, and I feel like in discussions among psychoanalysts, we tend to forget the benevolent part of it. Mm -hmm. In French, it's neutralité bienveillante. So yeah, I guess benevolent is a, is a good translation. And I found that psychoanalysts in France and in the U.S. alike would forget the first term. And I think that's already um, a way to indicate how maybe, from my perspective, how Anna Freud's idea of uh, neutrality might have been too technical. I'm assuming that some people who know Anna Freud better than we do mm -hmm. yeah. might have a more nuanced way on what she offered to um, offered psychoanalysts to and how they should position themselves. But from what we have, at least that, I wouldn't know how to work with such a stand. Mm -hmm. It requires to ground yourself in a very specific theory of the mind. We're talking the ego, superego, and id. That is a very specific theory of the mind, which not necessarily is the one we are using in our practices. 
rarely I hear someone presenting a case where they talk about the Eid, for example. In the practice, I think we have distanced ourselves already from a certain theory of the mind. And with those who at some point, I'm making perhaps a generalization here, but I, my guess is that some people who were originally more grounded in the structural theory, nowadays they look more into conflict, in what ways there is intrapsychic conflict. You mean that at some point people in psychoanalysis forgot about conflicts? No, I think at some point there was perhaps a mechanistic approach to conflict. And perhaps historians of psychoanalysis have more to say about this. It was a mechanistic approach. Oh, we have the id here, and we have the superego, and we have the ego negotiating. What I'm hearing is something that we can hear along the line of ego psychology. Correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that I do still think that the terms or the concept of ego, superego, and id, from what I understand of them, are useful to get a sense of how the psyche could work. But at the same time, I don't use them in my practice, mm-hmm. or extremely rarely. Yeah. I remember reading some articles where clinicians um, pretended or presented that they would see that in their patient. Oh, this is the ego. Oh, this is the superego. Oh, this is the id. Um, Yeah, I wouldn't be able to distinguish them from the other within an unfolding session, Mm -hmm. neither within my patients nor within me. Mm -hmm. After in supervision, I can think, oh, maybe this or that. It could happen. Within a session, I wouldn't know how to locate myself in the middle of an ego, superego, and id. Mm-hmm. I would not. I'm welcoming people who are listening to us who do have a better sense of what it means to them to write to us and to share that experience with us. And we would be very happy to report it on the podcast. But to me, it doesn't speak. It, mm-hmm. I can, it speaks to me in terms of a very rigid ego ideal of what a psychonist should be. Or ideal mm-hmm. ego. Um, I can't uh, remember which is which. <laughs> which, yeah. Ideal version of who we should be. Yeah. And therefore, it leads to some shame. We never measure up to that ideal. And we can shame others. Yes. He didn't position himself uh, sufficiently in the middle of all that during a presentation. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's much for me, at least as a clinician, to use for that. I like the idea that you brought up with Ken Corbett. But before we going back there, I want to say that there's a point about neutrality is that should we even interfere? Because we are going to talk in this podcast about how we actually interfere in our patient's analysis. Mm-hmm. One might say you might just listen and you don't say anything. We break neutrality necessarily every time we start talking every time we start questioning a patient Mm. and there's a question of when we start talking also is part of the question of neutrality i translate what you're saying into what one of my supervisors told me once is uh, in what ways my intervention my verbal intervention propels the treatment forward or closes doors. Correct. And therefore, my guess is that the neutrality in that context is the capacity to maintain a psychoanalytic position 
that allows the treatment to unfold without restricting in what direction it will unfold. But is it even possible? No, it's not possible. The same supervisor told me, well, the proof is in the pudding, which I <laughs> I have to okay. say that is one of the most psychoanalytic, grounded uh, statements that I've heard. The proof is okay. in the pudding. You know, if, if your intervention <laughs> propels the treatment, well, there you go. Great. Uh, <laughs> but reality is it's only in hindsight. Sometimes it's in hindsight that we learn something. Yeah, but you don't know. No. <laughs> you might learn years later. Years. Or realize years later, yeah. or even sometime a week later, that what you said, I mean, was actually against an intuition you had about your patient. Or, I mean, that's the thing about psychoanalysis. You can always say, well, you did something, you fucked up, but you know what? Maybe it's good. Maybe you acted on the counter-transference, so... <laughs> Good. You're exolved or you're s of your sins or whatever. Uh -huh. And uh, you can say, well, um, you don't know. You uh, were mean to the patient or you failed at something and it's fine because then it shakes the patient's... Uh, yeah. But here come my idealized version of myself. I'm working on trying to speak less. Mm -hmm. Because for years, I noticed how helpful I could be through interventions, mm -hmm. like thinking along my patients and helping them with my own thoughts. Yeah. And then I realized that first, it doesn't work all the time and that I mm -hmm. might have been closing more doors than I thought. Yeah. And that's, I think, what my supervisor was trying to instill in me, in what ways I'm foreclosing an exploration by making a, an intervention out of place or a grand interpretation, as she would say, that makes me feel great as a psychoanalyst, mm -hmm. but it doesn't land in the mind of the patient or it lands in a way that is disruptive and therefore may harm the treatment. And at the same time, not to say anything is not a solution either. Isn't that one of the critiques that psychoanalysis has received? The fact that people think of psychoanalysts as cold and silent and it would be easier to talk to a wall because at least you know that the wall is not a human being. But being in the room with a human being that does not talk to you, it's quite a challenging experience or could be. And about that, I still have a, a patient who lives in France. And at some point, I suggested this patient to go see one of my former supervisor in France, who um, I um, appreciate very much. I think very highly of him as a clinician. But I know he works very differently than me. Mm -hmm. And one thing he does is that he doesn't really talk that much. Okay. Uh -huh. And so my patient went to see so my supervisor and... I think a year or two later, so my patient saw my supervisor a few times. He's a, he's a psychiatrist also, so she, my patient was um, going to see him for uh, not, not therapy, but uh, psychiatric uh, help through medication. It didn't happen. And so a few years later, after having sessions with him, my patient mentioned how it was destabilizing at first uh -huh. that Chandra wouldn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And then my patient expressed that it happened to be freeing too, because my patient could feel that whatever was said, there would be no reaction. Mm -hmm. That's when I started thinking that 
my technique was missing something too. Because mm-hmm. my patient was saying that to me. Me, who, of course. especially mm-hmm. with this person, yeah. had been very engaged in helping my patient think because my patient was in a very difficult situation was, um, and was very overwhelmed by the situation. It was the first time someone expressed to me so clearly how beneficial it felt, it had felt, to have someone who really did not make a comment. Mm-hmm. After the awkward moments of, oh, fuck, he's not going to say anything at all. Mm-hmm. So that made me think that sometimes it might have been also my anxiety or my need to, anxiety might be too strong, or maybe it's, that's the case, to, as you just said, feel good about myself, feel useful in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we know when we are psychoanalysts that we see patients after patients. And to stay silent for a long time, you know, at some point, I feel like I need to talk mm-hmm. to, to feel more alive too. Mm-hmm. It's not just to make the patient feel better, it's also for me. Yeah, and I guess it changes from patient to patient. There are patients that can talk the whole hour, and that is fine. There are patients who talk the whole hour, and I fall asleep. And oh, that's yeah, different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is different. Of course, when I'm saying the whole hour, I'm talking about 45 minutes and I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course. It's different, you know. Patient talks and I feel engaged without participating verbally. A patient talks and I feel disengaged and falling asleep. So it's a completely different experience and it says something about the, the relationship and also what is needed from each one of these patients. And with other people, I am more verbally present. I participate more verbally. So now how do I make the distinction? That's difficult to pinpoint. How do I get to know when to talk and when to not talk or what kind of interventions to make or abstain from interventions? Now, when some people talk about neutrality, I think they confuse that with being abstinent, not participating at all. Well, that's what neutrality would be, and that's where benevolent neutrality comes in. Mm-hmm. I guess this is going to lead us to the next segment of this podcast, that you shouldn't impose your own beliefs on a patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But is it really possible? So, Edgar, is it really possible not to impose our own belief to our patients? I would not use the word impose, but I think it's a fantasy to think that who we are and what we believe is not part of the intersubjective field. To think that it's not there in the analysis, that is, I think, a fantasy. Oh, yes. A fantasy of what, by the way? What do you think? Maybe in one perspective is that the good analyst becomes a blank screen on which the patient is projecting things, and therefore that is what allows us to do the work. So I want to be a good analyst and I won't interfere. I will be a blank screen. Wouldn't that say that every analyst would provide exactly the same experience? And we know that that's not the case. We know it's not the case. (laughs) We know very well (laughs) that it's not not the the case. case. But if we were really neutral, if we were really not imposing or not offering Mm -hmm. in any shape or form our own beliefs, wouldn't we be exactly the same, all the analysts? 
Correct, and that's not possible. And here is where I go back to what I think is the beauty of the topographical model, which is the unconscious communication. As we think of the topographical model in the room, in the psychoanalytic experience, my unconscious is communicating with the unconscious of the patient. So to think that I am a blank screen then dissolves that tenet or I think it's a tenet of the topographical model in conscious to unconscious communication. In that case, for me, that model is more important than even the structural model in the sense of in what ways, as Theodore Reich expressed, in what ways the pain of the patient finds a space in my own pain. Well, I'm paraphrasing in, uh, Theodore Reich. And it's because in the unconscious communications, we find our common humanity. That's what he says. So my human experience is completely different from yours, Gregoire. Therefore, a patient of who goes to you and then comes to me will have a completely different experience. And it's not about technique, necessarily. The technique will be informed by our beliefs, by our experience, but everything that makes us who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we decide to intervene, what it makes us think about, it, it is embedded completely with our experience of life. Correct. And everyone is unique. Yes, and therefore a blank screen in that sense is, is an impossibility. I guess it leads us to the question of, we agree that we need to exist in the room, and with some patients it's easier than with others. Mm-hmm. As we were talking about Ken Corbett's idea of uh, neutrality, there is the question of how do we work with issues that are very socially sensitive. I guess in part what you're saying is that the social issue might be extremely important for the patient and it shows up in the clinical material. And I think when that happens, we have an intense, well, let me say I have intense thoughts and inner experiences in what ways do i align with the patient let's say that we align politically that what the patient is talking about is something that i care deeply and i align with the patient's perspective in what ways that alignment shows up in the way i intervene with the patient again uh, what i hear from the patient is coming from that place of certainty in the patient or is it coming from a place of conflict i don't know necessarily Mm -hmm. so therefore if i immediately jump in and align with oh i of course even that kind of intervention of course that of course you should have fewer taxes yes (laughs) (laughs) more military No question about it. <laughs> so that exactly what <laughs> what you think, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course, of course. Even that kind of intervention forecloses the possibility of an exploration. At the same time, again, talking about patients who might feel more sensitive, less safe. How do we balance our need as psychoanalysts? I believe, at least, our need to stay critical or curious. Mm-hmm. And yet, probably an assumed, at least, need from those patients to feel like the analyst is on their side. What does it mean to be on their side? 
that is a fundamental question and I think in psychoanalytic terms to be on the patient's side is to allow for the expanded exploration of whatever subject the patient is bringing up. Now, one of the things that I have observed and I hear also from other colleagues is what if a patient has a certain uh, political perspective or let's say regarding identity, the patient locates themselves in a very specific position. Let's say the patient is trans, shows up in my office, then what does it mean to allow the trans experience to unfold in the room without foreclosing? And I think foreclosing would be when I fall into the politics of identity that say whatever way you identify yourself, that is fine, absolutely fine, and we, we're not going to talk about that. That forecloses the exploration. And in that sense, one falls into the trap of what one thinks creating a therapeutic alliance is in fact aligning with a certain dimension of the patient and therefore foreclosing the possibility of exploring on a deeper level. What could be said against that or argued against it is that we then are not supportive. So far, I haven't worked with people who presented themselves as transsexual, but I, I have had patients with other gender or object choice uh, questions and questions of racism. And mm -hmm. I felt like in such moments, questioning was experienced as denying. No, I agree with you. I know, I know. I think you're right, if that helps our audience. I agree with you. I think we should keep thinking. Mm-hmm. And stay curious. But also, I want us to think, how do we work with both the need for us to stay curious mm -hmm. and the sense I get from time to time that me being curious or me being critical can be experienced as an attack? Yes. Because you are, all of a sudden, by questioning a belief, mm -hmm. the belief becomes a belief. Mm -hmm. While most People who come to therapy come with beliefs who are facts. Mm -hmm. And if you add to that layer that we come as also human beings mm -hmm. with our own therapy analysis, how do we work with the fact that we don't know where our critics or our curiosity come from? Because if we take the example of a patient who comes and identifies uh, and presents himself or herself or herself as a trans person, quickly the question can be, especially so in our social environment, oh, you're questioning it because you have unconscious bias. 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 Mm -hmm. And so you are actually against me. Mm-hmm. So as psychoanalysts, how can we work with those social and internal pressures? What do you think? One, unless there is a therapeutic alliance established, any exploration creates a shaky ground. Mm. So we need the therapeutic alliance first and foremost. To be in place, unless a therapeutic alliance is in place, meaning that the patient is able to acknowledge that in the room we suspend judgment and part of the patient's censorship is suspended from the part of the analyst judgment is suspended of course that is an idealized situation but yes. uh, once we are approaching 
or we look into that horizon where censorship and judgment are suspended at least for 45 minutes a week, then the patient might feel like we are on their side. And that will deepen the therapeutic alliance. And when the themes of identity come up, then the exploration, the curiosity about how the patient experiences themselves is no longer, or hopefully will no longer be an attack, but an exploration and a desire from the analyst, I think, to get to know the patient on a deeper level. And that is what I think opens the door for the patient to get to know what's there in their own inner world. So when we say that we should be on our patient's side, I guess we should think about the fact that we are on the side of their complexity. Correct. And to be on the patient's side does not mean that the exploration is a way to take away something from the patient, which I think it happens very often that if we are going to explore how the patient experiences race, somehow we're going to take something from them. That if we, we are exploring what it means to have a trans experience, that we're taking something from them. When in fact what we are is trying to understand what is the experience. The idea of the attack that you mentioned, it's very much connected to this sense that the analyst is going to take something away from me based on some prejudice in our society that we come to therapy because there's something wrong with me and therefore that will be taken away. Yes, and I actually I articulate that or I try to with some patients. That therapy is not about right or wrong. I do say that from time to time. But that the end goal of therapy is not to end up being pure. It's to end up being comfortable. I would add that comfortable is connected to having a, a life that is fuller. Yeah, you know, that you're comfortable with your own conflict. Correct. That you don't have to hate yourself for yes. wanting yes. one thing and also another that seems incompatible. And that actually you can manage to have de develop values that will help you decide when you go on one side and when you go on another. This idea of to be on the patient's side, I'm reminded also of Kwame Appiah's perspective on identity. He's a philosopher. But I think it's a point that he makes is extremely important. He says that identities are dialogical, meaning they are constructed in relationship with the other. And so to be on the side of the patient is to acknowledge that as we talk about the identity of the patient or where the patient locates themselves, we are saying that we are creating something there together. It doesn't have to lead to something being taken away, but something being built together. And you need, as you m mentioned, you really need a therapeutic alliance to be able to do so. Mm -hmm. And when we try to question things too fast, or when we feel the urge mm -hmm. to or the need to, then indeed the experience of the patient is most likely mm -hmm. going to be that we are against them and it's unbearable. Yeah. This conversation reminds me of one example that Antonino Ferro presents in one of his books. He says that, well, if a patient comes in and the patient says, it's too cold in here, 
and the analyst jumps in and says, do you find me cold as a person? The patient is saying something, then you stand up or you go to the thermostat and you change the temperature of the room. And there might be an unconscious communication as well. Well, it depends on how hot it is already. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's in Italy. Where, is, where in Italy? Because if it's in Sicilia and someone says that, <laughs> you might go right away for the interpretation. <laughs> I, don't th I don't think he meant that. But, but yeah, okay. of course. Uh, so there is manifest content and there is latent content. But this idea that we need to jump immediately into the latent content or into the transference without understanding that the patient might be communicating in both layers, in both channels, and we jump into one of them, you know, the temperature is too cold, let's say, well, you change the thermostat, why not? And at some point, you may talk about that. I know. Which I would address as, you know, the patient's capacity to assert that something needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. Maybe something needs to be changed in the analysis. Or, <laughs> or maybe it's just a thermostat. <laughs> to add another uh, interpretation is that it might not be the analyst who's too cold, but what the patient feels inside. Mm -hmm. True. We talked about the patient and how do we think about the way we as analysts might be pulled into aligning ourselves with the politic of our time. Mm -hmm. And in that way, probably oversimplifying the experience of our patients. Mm. I could say that about that, I can feel sometime, and I would attribute that partially to the fact that I was born in a different culture, that sometime... I wonder if my patients would like me to... Sometimes I feel like it would make a session easier for me to just be what I think is a nice guy. Mm -hmm. And that is often around themes that are sensitive. And among them, uh, as I said, racism, gender, objects choice, and... I would add climate change now, uh, as we had discussion with Susan. When I have a patient who will have what I believe to be a racist comment, and the patient is a person of color, a non-white, whatever you want to call that uh, use that distinction, mm -hmm. what am I to say? Because I could just use the academically understood idea that if you're a person of color, I don't really like that term, but it's a good way to get a sense of what I'm referring to. You're not supposed to be racist because racism is about oppression and only people who are oppressive uh, can be determined racist. And if I question that, I'm going for a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. And if I don't, I feel like I'm missing help I can provide to my patient. Mm -hmm. And so that is an example of how I at least can feel pulled into saying what is politically correct. Yes, And it's a hot topic, but it can happen all the time. For instance, also with um, gender, what it means to be a man, a woman, a trans person. Mm -hmm. The idea of conflict when you are with a man and the guy is a man should be like this and bring up all the yeah. stereotypical idea of being, a, in quote, a man. 
And me coming from France, I can see that moving from a culture to another, you have already very different, a big change into what it means to be a man that is offered to you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I would need to say, well, well, you're a man, but you have a feminine part too that constitutes you. I think that could be helpful, but I can feel so pulled into, you know, who am I to judge? Am I going to be heard? Those are examples and I, of moments where I feel it's easy to not question the outside politics, but it's at the expense of our patience, I believe. Correct. In my mind, I've floated in some examples of things that I made assumptions about a patient. And I made the assumption because I was immersed, as we are all, but I am immersed in a system of that declares that, for example, this is a patriarchal society and this is a heteronormative society. So I am immersed in that patriarchal and heteronormative society. Therefore, when I am listening to my patients, sometimes I don't realize that I'm listening from those identities that I observed in society. And I have made assumptions that <laughs> I realized at the end that were wrong assumptions about, for example, about race or about the sexual orientation of a patient. In those moments, I was aligning with a system of power, meaning heteronormative and patriarchal society. And by aligning with those systems, I could not see something that my patient needed to remind me of by expressing in words the otherness, their otherness. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you are actually adding another layer it's even more than the what is politically correct. It's the general frame in which we live and how we understand it. Yeah, the structure. The structure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is it for today? Yes, indeed. A uh, podcast that felt different to us. Let's see how the audience receives it. Before we leave you, we just wanted to add two things regarding what we mentioned in the podcast. First, at some point, we mentioned that we don't take anything from our patient. We will go back to that question in a later podcast. But right away, we want to say that, of course, we are taking something away from our patient when we try to understand them otherwise there would be no resistance but the question is what is it that we take away at least from the patient's perspective and does it come with something else so we just wanted right away to bring up the fact that we were already aware that this was missing from the conversation also Edgar and I, when we were listening to the edited version of the podcast realized that we should go back to the idea of heteronormativity yes and so there will be a whole podcast dedicated mm-hmm. to that question. Again, it was supposed to be a short discussion, but it ended up being a long discussion. A longer <laughs> discussion than we, we thought, yes. So that's it. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you like what we are doing, please give us five stars. Or just don't do it. Don't. That's it. <laughs> don't. <laughs> Use your right to abstain. Yes. <laughs> 
with all modesty. Anyway, thank you again. Thank, thank you very you. much. And、uh, see you in a month. Until then. Bye bye. Bye.